Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Centre Media and Politics Podcast. This episode features a conversation with Baskar Sankara, editor and publisher of Jacobin Magazine. He spoke about left-wing politics in the US, including discussion of the intersection of race and class, work and automation, and the role of labor unions. The conversation was moderated by Nick O'Mealy, director of the Shorenstein Center. Welcome to the Shorenstein Center speaking series. Again, my name is Nick O'Mealy. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center, and our guest today is Baskar Sunkara, the founding editor and publisher of Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is a left-wing quarterly magazine based in New York. It describes itself as, quote, leading voice of the American left, offering socialist perspectives on politics, economics, and culture. He is the editor, uh, among other volumes, of the ABCs of Socialism, and the co-editor of this book, The Future We Want, Radical Ideas for the New Century. You can also, I encourage you to pick up and subscribe to Jacobin. You know, I came across Jacobin uh, because I was looking for new ideas, new ways of thinking about where the country is going. I think it's kind of clear this is a moment uh, of significant transition for our politics and our media. And I was looking for fresh voices in that. And I just want to read to you, I printed out the headlines from the the Jacobin website today. Lipstick fascism. The women of the alt-right and the feminization of fascism. Your boss's big little secret. You have a right to know how much your co-workers are paid. And if you want to close the wage gap, you should. Che Guevara in the Congo. Ignoring elites. How not to think about politics in the age of Trump. Work to death. The American pension crisis. Capitalism versus privacy. A number of interesting and compelling uh, arguments and ideas. I'm looking forward to a vigorous discussion. Baskar, welcome to Harvard. Thank you for having me. So I want to start and just ask you for your kind of diagnosis of the politics in this country right now. Wow, you're starting big. Yes. Uh, I would say I'm a little bit disappointed. When I, when I got the invitation to Harvard, I was expecting more like oak and mahogany or something like that. Like this, this you know, it's, it's all right, but next time. Um, There's cubicles even. I'm looking for the cigar afterwards. Uh, okay. um, but I mean, I, I think the present situation is this. Um, you have a lot of people who are alienated and disgruntled with, with politics as usual. And we're in danger of having the only anti-establishment voice be one coming from the populist right. So the situation to me is a pretty depressing one. Trump doesn't have a huge mandate yet. He kind of squeaked by an election, but I'm afraid that if the Democrats continue on their current course, he could develop one over time. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't even take Trump and the populist right convincing people that they have a much better alternative. All it takes is a little bit of deficit financing and them being smart enough and Paul Ryan allowing, you know, a big infrastructure and jobs program and something to like at least slightly ameliorate, um, you know, the feeling that a lot of people are, are having. What gives me some hope is that Bernie Sanders showed that there is the potential for majoritarian politics around like broadly a social democratic program today, not like 10, 20 years down the road, but immediately. Um, so the kind of rhetoric of the Sanders campaign, basically saying, you know, you work hard, um, you sacrifice a lot, 
you're trying to do right and you deserve more. And not only that, but we know the people responsible for you not having enough. And it's a millionaire and billionaire class. I think broadly, that's the only fighting alternative to the rhetoric we're having from the populist right. And, you know, we're in this situation now, which seems to be a pretty, um, you know, dire one with the rise of, of the right. And this is with them having Trump at the helm. And obviously, Trump has certain things to his, his credit as an oppositional figure, right? He kind of embodies some of this at least in rhetoric, some of this anti-establishment pose and, and whatnot. He, he does feed his base with, with red meat, but he also is like pretty bungling. And he's made a lot of crucial errors like around Trump care and other things and, and the way in which some of his concrete proposals have been laid out. But you can imagine how dangerous a situation would be like if the populist right had someone with more kind of acumen and vision. You know, I, So I'm afraid not just now, but after we defeat Trump and I think I also thought he didn't have a chance in 2016 so who am I to say but it seems like he can easily be defeated electorally in 2020 but what about Trumpism um, could we be in a situation where US politics starts to resemble French politics where you have you know a populist right that's a constant uh, fixture in politics pushing every measure and every idea to the right and even if they can't win in the French case in the second round of these presidential elections they're still there as a major force so I really think the only alternative is, I'm not saying it's socialism or barbarism. I'm saying that it's, you know, Bernie Sanders, welfare capitalism or Trumpism. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's why I, I'm a socialist is why I think we need a socialist poll in American politics, because the kind of um, pragmatism of the, the democratic um, center is just, you know, I think in an extremely unpragmatic way, um, just allowing this rightward drift in American politics. Talk, talk a little bit about how you view the Democratic Party today. I mean, you mentioned Bernie Sanders, but, you know, he's he's approaching 80. And in fact, many of the leaders of the Democratic Party are approaching 80, if not older. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Democratic Party, and this is no, not the fault of this generation of Democratic leaders. I think this is often framed in a way that, oh, FDR and LBJ were of a certain character and disposition, and Hillary Clinton is, is of another in a, in a very personalized way, which I don't actually think makes sense. I would say that the Democratic Party has always been a party of capital. And I don't mean that pejoratively. I just mean it's always represented certain business interests within its tent. Um, Big oil, we now associate with just George W. Bush and the Republicans, but in fact, big oil was a major part, there was lots of historical reasons for this, of the Democratic coalition from the 1930s up into the, the 80s. Now, if you have a party that represents popular and labor interests and also represents the interests of capital at the same time, it means that when times are going well and there's a boom, you could actually say that the pie is growing because of this you know, business-led you know, growth, and we're going to um, you know, make sure that some of the share of this growing pie is going to workers. Now, when the pie is at best staying the same size, or if anything's shrinking, the best that the Democratic Party can say from the 1970s onwards to these same workers is that, you know, we're going to uh, give you more of the pie, more of the shrinking pie than uh, the Republicans could. And also to historically oppressed and marginalized groups, we're going to make sure that this shrinking pie is more equitably um, uh, you know, uh, split up. So in other words, they could promise social inclusion, but they now promise social inclusion without any of the economic kind of gains that went with it. Whereas even up to the Great Society, they could offer both. So you could obviously see the way in which um, not just white workers, but whole segments of the population, it feels like things have been 
um, going wrong for them now correlate the fact that the pie is 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 growing and that there has been social gains for oppressed groups, you know, together as as being you know one's responsible for the for the other, and I think you know the approach of let's say this populist left that emerged around Sanders, it's also represented by people like Keith Ellison to some degree Elizabeth Warren, is to basically fight against this idea that the house is ready full or that the you know the the pie is going to continue to strengthen this this direction. So my view of the Democratic Party is because of these broader structural kind of factors um, that have emerged since the 1970s, um, there needs to be a strong affirmative program of redistribution, an alternative model of growth. They've been unable to provide it. I think often on the left, we personalize um, this inability. But um, you know, the fact is, unless you actually have the will and the capability to actually mobilize a different source of power than the traditional Democratic base. And by base, I don't mean the people voting for the Democratic Party. I mean the business interests attached to it. And today, a lot of it's um, in the finance industries and real estate and Silicon Valley and whatnot. Unless you're able to conceive of politics in a, in a different way, in a more popular way, then uh, you know, I think that we're doomed to, to have the, the Democrats continue along this, this path. So in that kind of framework, why did you start this magazine? Well, I started the magazine, I mean, honestly, I have lots of reasons why, why I could say, right? And it's easy to two or three years, or in this case, five or six years after the fact, just come by with this kind of narrative and vision or whatever. I started the magazine because I had some extra spare time. Um, <laughs> and it was pretty my sophomore and junior year at, um, as an undergrad. Um, so I didn't have a lot of social obligations. You know, the world isn't, you know, wasn't, asking much of me at the time um, and I thought that you know I had developed a network on the socialist left and, and I knew plenty of smart um, smart people and I had a bit of business acumen so I figured why not take these smart people and facilitate a project so we're not just talking amongst ourselves and I think it was based on this idea that socialist ideas you know I, I've been a member of the Democratic Socialist of America for 10 years since I was like 17 years old and for me these ideas um, the moral and ethical ideas at the core of the, the socialist project, um, the idea that we should live in a world with, without exploitation, without oppression, these were ideas that should have appeal beyond the five or 6,000 people then in discussion with the ideas. So I think Jacobin, what set it apart from the rest of the socialist left is that even at a time of historic defeat, we were trying to um, kind of evangelicalize among this broader um, you know, public and to try to win over people who are unpoliticized and liberals to this moral and ethical um, vision. And then also, at the one hand, combine this kind of earnest purpose with some degrees of humor and levity and, and, and whatnot. And I think that's where it started. And it was an easy project at first, because at first it was just an online magazine. It was an utter failure. My first day, we had uh, uh, 636 visitors on the site. Um, and the reason why I went to print is I figured, you know, it'll just at least how, make how it. How many of them were your mother, right? What's that? How many of them were your yeah, mother? Yeah, my mother, mother, my aunt, you know, you know, a whole, you know, and they were probably refreshing throughout the day a little bit. So, <laughs> so my thinking was, though, that, you know, I needed a, an actual revenue mechanism and a mechanism to make Jacobin be perceived as being more serious, and that meant going to print. So I kind of doubled down on something that was failing, and it continued to fail for a while. Um, uh, then it stopped failing, but but no one was really watching, and that's the thing. When you're doing a project in private um, or in semi-private, and 636 people, that's basically private. Um, you have time to learn and develop and grow skills and 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 whatnot. 
Uh, whereas right now I'm far more conservative. Hopefully not in my politics, but in my, uh, you know, the way I approach Jacobin, just because uh, the, the failure would be even more, uh, you know, humiliating in public. So what, what do you make of, uh, what do you make of hillbilly elegy and strangers in their own land, uh, you know, and this, this kind of narrative that we have to more deeply understand the Trump voter uh, in the Democratic Party? Um, so I actually have only read about half of Hillbilly um, Elegy, and it seemed to me, at least from that half, and again, for me, that's basically more than most books I read. I normally do the grad student read. I read the introduction, I skim to the end, I kind of see if there's interesting footnotes, and then I say I read the book. Um, but, um, you know, if you're an editor, all you need is general knowledge and to get through like two to three minutes of a conversation. Uh, this is going to be tough for me. This is a whole hour, you know. Um, but Hill, Hillbilly um, Elegy, I think, is almost like, it's almost like the culture of poverty arguments throughout the 80s and 90s that were, you know, uh, obviously very racist and propagated by, you know, including some center-left publications like the New Republic, uh, but for, like, poor white people. Um, and here is a, a potential native informant who I think was only, you know, in these, you know, communities in, like, his, like the summer and whatnot. Um, like now uh, pushing this narrative of there's something wrong at the roots with the culture of these communities that reinforce poverty and all these other other things. So, I mean, sure, I think there should be a level of, of understanding the situation that people live in. But if your you're thing that you're diagnosing is that these people should be more flexible and, and able to adapt to the economy and willing to move to the cities and, and whatever else, I think that's a wrong sort of a conclusion. When I see poverty, I see something very simple. I see, you know, people who need money, right? And I, and I see people who need goods and services. And I, when I think of the state, I think of the state as the only vehicle large enough to efficiently deliver these goods and services. So if we have an epidemic of, I'd say, heroin addiction in huge parts of the country, well, I see people in need of high quality, um, you know, services to get over these um, addiction through, you know, uh, counseling, through medical services and whatnot. I also see people who probably need, you know, jobs. I think as a last resort, the state should be a provider of those jobs and whatnot. So, you know, I see the problems, I think, more simply than a lot of a lot of people. And what I'm even proposing isn't a leap into the unknown. What I'm proposing in the short term is nothing more than, you know, a Scandinavian welfare state, uh, which in a country as wealthy as the U.S. should be common sense. And I think that's, that's part of our immediate project, and this is part of the project that Bernie Sanders contributed so much to, is to try to get people to expect more of the state. You know, we're not asking for the state to alleviate heartbreak and suffering and angst or whatever. Like, even communism wouldn't do that, right? That's some, certain things are parts of the, the human condition. Um, but we are asking for the states to provide, you know, a basic level of human dignity to allow people to reach their potential and, and so on. And, and I think often um, there's this kind of uh, voyeuristic view of poverty, um, whether um, in the African-American community or among poor whites, where people uh, make it seem like these are impossible to decipher solutions. You know, I see 60,000 homeless people in New York and I think, hey, maybe we should build more high quality public housing instead of letting that public housing that we have deteriorate. You know, I see poor people, I think we should build homes. And obviously at the level of policy, this becomes more complicated and nuanced. But at the level of politics, I think it's, you know, it's common sense what direction our policy should be driven. And that's, in a lot of ways, is a moral and ethical um, vision. 
What uh, what role do you see technology playing in, in, in that and in kind of the direction of our economy? So on technology, this is one place where I can't really even feign through two or three minutes. Because I, 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 I'm always, I think like a lot of people, I'm convinced by the last thing I read, right? So something will say like driverless cars and mass autom uh, mass automation of existing jobs is coming in like 10 years, another article say 20 years, and I just agree with the last thing I, I, I read generally. I would say that if you think about places in which, um, like why is in Europe, why are they more capital intensive and why do they, they're, they're slightly on the more innovative edge than in America, American companies and factories? You know, the answer is simple, like they have more wage pressure. So when I look at the low wage workforce in the US, I kind of think, why would capital even want to automate some of these jobs because you know they're being paid almost nothing and there's there's risks in, in introducing new technologies and and so on so to some degree i'm a skeptic about how fast uh, some of these automation will be pushed through um i also think that that generally you're, you're a skeptic because you think there's the potential that automation will increase pressure on the no i'm skeptic just because i think that as far as these things are going to be introduced, right? But as far as the pace of the introduction, if we had even a social democracy in the US, I think we would have a quicker pace of job displacement through automation because there would be more wage pressure and more incentive for, for uh, companies to invest to in, in, in yeah, capital, um, this capital intensive um, uh, uh, t technology. Um, you know, as it is, I, I think it's more important than ever to actually develop a a mode of politics that foregrounds the interests of, of workers. And that doesn't necessarily mean that this society will be like less on the cutting edge of technology or whatnot. It might actually, again, create wage pressures that will increase the pace of technological um, innovation, but then at the same time be able to protect these workers through active labor market policies and jobs retraining and a welfare state in case they're displaced and can put them in a different sector of the economy and, and whatnot. But I think we have to start from the premise that you know, the most important thing isn't the bottom line, the most important thing is social welfare. So when we think, for example, about 1970s Sweden, right? And I hate to point to it, it's not my model of a just society, it falls short of it, but it's as close as we've, we've gotten in the, you know, the human endeavor. And you know, this is a society that had free trade, right? Um, this is a society that had um, uh, uh, lots of firm failure and, and things like that. And, you know, so I, I think in other words, what's key is that we develop the politics that foreground working class interests. Uh, then from there, we could, you know, see technology as a thing that helps rather than hurts, right? Certain jobs like should in fact be automated, right? The people um, in those sectors might want to do something else. Um, but if it's on the present course where the working class has less and less power, but also they're more and more at the whims of globalization and, uh, and, a, um, and technolo technological change, I think that's dangerous. And the best way I've heard this described was by a British member of parliament of the Labour Party, John Trickett. And he was trying to explain why in his district, almost 90% plus of the population voted leave. And he said that, you know, it's like you're on a runaway train and you don't know what direction the train is going and it's going faster and faster. So he said people in his district did what was pretty logical, especially if they didn't even know if there was a conductor or not. They looked around at the people in their car and they decided to link hands with the people in their car. 
obviously there's a different alternative, right? There's a socialist vision of maybe trying to communicate with people in other cars and joining together and trying to take control of the, the train. But um, in the present environment, I, I think that for a lot of people, they're not against technology for the sake of being against technology. They're against, um, you know, a train that they don't know where the direction is and they don't know what their fate will be in the, the future. But through conscious um, discussion, through actually bringing politics into this sphere, bringing politics into the sphere of technology, I think we could have both. I think we could have technological advance. We could embrace actually the, the positive aspects of automation. So I'm 27 years old. I'm um, not planning to have kids anytime soon. But, you know, I would hope with those driverless cars that I wouldn't have to have the worries that my parents had when I was like 17 and 18 and trying to like learn how to drive and, and so on. Of You know, maybe, in fact, it'll be nice to live in a society where, you know, human beings aren't in control of vehicles, right? Um, and maybe there'll be certain social goods we can think about it. Um, but I'm more apt to envision that future once we're at that stage um, than I am now when I know how many truckers and uh, cab drivers and whoever else will be displaced and will just be, go from being precariously employed in the working class to being just poor. Um, so so that's, that's kind of my stance on, on technology. I want to foreground politics without being um, anti-technology. What... Uh how do you, you know, there's this kind of media narrative about uh, the young people in America being very far left and, and arguably the farthest left generation the country's ever seen, you know, kind of a new generation of socialists. And how do you understand, is that narrative true? Is there a, is there, is there a generational kind of shift happening? And how, play that out for us. So I think it's true in this instance in the United States today, but it's often ascribed to like youth or these other like cultural, trans-historical like cultural factors. Uh, but if you look at France, for example, not to turn back to, to, to France, but um, the uh, National Front, Le Pen, might actually win um, a polarity of young people, of, of millennials, right? Um, and these are people, of, of course, exposed to a very similar mass culture that American young people are exposed to and, and whatnot. There's all sorts of reasons for this. But the point being that I think, yes, young people are moving to the left, but, but a lot of that has to do with, with politics, right? It has to do with the success of, of organizers. Um, it has to do, yes, with a certain degree of like cultural traits that, that makes America better than certain European countries, right? It's hard to build a... Uh, xenophobic um, ethno-nationalism in a state that conceives of itself, at least, as a nation of immigrants, right? It's a harder project. I often think that Steve Bannon's project, as far as building a social majority around the thing that he wants to build a social majority, is in fact harder than, if not my project, which is pretty damn hard, um, than, you know, Bernie Sanders, you know, building a, a majoritarian uh, social, demo uh, social democratic kind of consensus. So, you know, I, I think you could find it just in the fact that a lot of these people are um, well-educated. They're the sons and daughters of the professional middle class. They're finding out that the promises um, told to them, that if they work hard and keep their head down, they'll be able to get a stable job and they'll be able to at least maintain their, their living standards, um, is, is uh, a lie. Um, and I think that's leading people to look for solutions. And if you're young, you might like actually find a coherent worldview, agree with it or disagree with it, in a place like Jacobin or other places on the, the socialist left than you would um, in the venues of the, the center that actually don't have anything else to, to offer. But I don't want to just lay back and assume that 
you know, demographics is going to take care of everything because I think that's part of the problem that got us in this this mess to, to begin with uh, Trump's Trump's election. Hmm. All right. I have one more question and then I'll open it up to the audience. Uh, so please get your questions ready. Um, but so I did I did want to ask you about, um, uh, uh, you know, race and class in America and to what extent I mean, both race and class were, I seems like very high relief in this last election. And how you how do you how do you understand that in America right now? Well, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that if, if you look at actually this the situation in America, you have um, disport. I mean, first of all, this question is often broadly conceived of the prop, the you know POCs versus white in this very kind of um, broad kind of language. But I think in particular in the United States, we have to grapple with the hyper-exploitation of black workers and the fact that in particular black workers have been always locked at the bottom of the um, of the US um, uh, labor market and they're locked at the bottom of the labor market that's also very hard to move out of so even for white workers it's very hard we have very little social mobility in this this country and they're on the worst end of it but then I think it almost becomes a broader discussion about diversity and representation, um, and that's been the dominant uh, rhetoric of the Democratic Party, this rhetoric of social inclusion. It's not that I'm against these things. I just think it only goes to the surface level. If you really want to talk about the conditions of minorities in this country, you have to deal with the question of redistribution. And if you're dealing with the question of redistribution, you have to deal with the question of class. And we have to acknowledge that the number one, number two, number three concerns of the white workers, Latino workers, and black workers, it's probably exactly the same. It's probably jobs, uh, security, you know, all these other um, issues. And often, again, this is kind of made to be this like complex, difficult thing. Like, can this politician, can Bernie Sanders get in the head of, of black workers and what they're thinking? Can he relate to these experiences or whatnot? Maybe, maybe not at a cultural level, but the kind of program that he pushed for, Medicare for all, um, a massive jobs program, uh, free higher education, these are things that would disproportionately help black workers. And I think it's an argument that you could win in the black community and in other communities through organizing. So often these things are seen as kind of divergent, whereas I think they go hand in hand. But to me, there can be no anti-racism with teeth unless you're dealing with the question of redistribution. And if you're dealing with the question of redistribution, you're dealing with the question of class. You're dealing with the question of taking something from someone and giving it to other people. You're not talking about taking something from a diminishing share of returns that are going to white workers and giving it to other people. You're talking about really taking on um, elite interests. And I think that's what the rhetoric that people are uncomfortable with, right? They're fine with diversity if diversity just means representation. They're not fine with diversity if it also means providing goods and services to communities that don't have it now. Not because they're ideologically opposed to it. Not because the ruling class now is particularly ideologically um, racist. It's because it requires a cost, and it's a cost they're not willing to bear for anyone, uh, be they white workers or black workers, Latino workers. All right, do we have some questions from the audience? Anybody question? We got a question for I here and then over here. Hi, Faraj Dana, Shorenstein Center Fellow. I'm wondering how you. You have a, a very robust circulation and a great magazine, but so many people are completely shut off 
from most political discourse. Um, even within their ideological silos, they just maybe get a little surface information, don't want to hear more because they feel completely disempowered and don't want to know anything more. How, how can we break through the disengagement around um, politics, economics, and, and just this feeling that so many, I mean, I've spent years as a field reporter, mm -hmm. and so many people just unplug from these debates because they feel they have nothing to gain and will only be angry. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this stems from the fact people don't have a lot of time and they don't feel like politics is working for them. So it's like the same discussion often happens with like um, uh, voter participation. And it's often, often framed in very apolitical terms, just apathy, like, oh, people don't care, as opposed to people weighing different needs that they have in a limited amount of time and deciding not to vote because, you know, politicians hasn't, haven't been serving them. Um, I think a publication like Jacobin is fundamentally always going to be somewhat a niche. Um, I think we're more meant as a spark to start something um, broader that could actually be like, you know, appeal to reason. We had a socialist publication just a little bit over 100 years ago that was number three or number four in circulation in the entire country. And adjusted for population would be bigger than something like Time Magazine um, or The Economist today. And that was appeal to reason. It had a life in working class communities. It had a base. Um, Jacobin, um, obviously has more of a base than your average socialist journal. But, um, <laughs> but you know, we, just like the left as a whole, um, at the moment isn't deeply rooted in our, uh, this working class community. So it's often like a silo. There's like the socialist left, social movements, and um, the working class broadly conceived, right? Whereas when the socialist movement was always at its strongest, you would just have the workers' movement. Out of this workers' movement would arise socialist leaders. And obviously that, that would have kind of a life of its own, this interaction. Um, and out of the struggles of the working class would, have brought, uh, would arise the things we would broadly consider to be, you know, like social movements, right? Um, and the fact that we kind of conceive of it, these things are separate things, um, I think is just a reflection of where we're at politically. Um, but I think that's, that's the goal. The goal is to obviously reach and connect with people and have them not just be people reading or receiving information, but actively participating in political processes that are generating these ideas to begin with. Uh, Jacobin is, is more of an effort from, from kind of afar to try to spark this kind of thing. But uh, that's something I'm very wary of, the fact that left and also media generally is kind of in a, almost like a subculture. It's either like, like the New York Times circulation is spiking, but if Betty if you did a demographic profile of, of you know, the New York Times subscriber base, you would still find it being disproportionately higher income and, and, and whatnot, which is like completely opposed to the way um, you would imagine mass circulation newspapers um, used to be or could be when, when you know, they actually had um, you know, strength and relevance. So I think it's a, it's a problem that you can't solve by media alone. You have to solve it by political organizing. Um, and there's a limited amount we could do. I think the best we could do is make sure that someone could pick up an article, uh, an issue of Jackman, or read an article, and without any prerequisite knowledge, uh, be able to get something from it. Um, the way that you know, I could pick up an issue of The Economist and read an article and not have to ever read Adam Smith to understand it, right? But the idea that I think, especially on the socialist left, we expect people to be just jumping in at the very tail end of a conversation, um, instead of just even assuming that people share our our ethical and moral values. Like, you know, like I'm opposed, like I said, I'm a socialist, I'm opposed to hierarchy and exploitation, but what is exploitation? What is hierarchy? Why is it bad? These are normative arguments, and one could actually 
you know, disagree, or one could actually say I'm opposed to extreme versions of exploitation, um, like slavery or indenture or whatnot, but I uh, think capitalist exploitation is justified. So let's have that discussion. Let's, you know, but I think every venue is, is assuming a lot of um, common ground that actually needs to be forged. And so in terms of your energy and the energy of the magazine, are you putting that into the Democratic Party? Or how do you think of, if you have a magazine of ideas and of uh, kind of socialist argument, where does that transition into politics and power for you? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that's going to be up to organizers and people taking these ideas. Uh, I would say that in general, this new socialist left that's emerging has an uneasy relationship with the Democratic Party, similar to the relationship that, let's say, um, libertarian currents did in the 60s and 70s to the Republican Party. And obviously, they, in their project, um, eventually more or less fused with national review type conservatism and, and develop a, a current within the Republican Party. I think for the sake of our project, um, socialist politics will only be developed in a party um, rooted eventually in the working class, right? Rooted with different prerogatives and interests in the Democratic Party. But it's easy to say that. It's hard to say how we get from here to there. Um, so there's a lot of different arguments. There was an interesting one by Seth Ackerman in a previous issue of Jacobin uh, that basically argued that what constitutes independent political action, like socialists keep, keep talking about, right? If you have your own base of funding, if you have your own ideology, if you're connected with your own organizations that discipline electoral efforts and eventually candidates when they're elected, if you're running on the democratic primaries and open socialists with all those prerequisites, isn't that independent political action? If I decide to run in, um, against Nita Lowy and I decide to do so with my politics, with a base of support and funding that's independent as a Republican in my, my home district in New York, would that constitute me trying to be a Republican and transform the Republican Party or would that constitute independent political action? I think, so I, I think there's a way that to understand the particularities and the conditions of the U.S. electoral system without uh, going the old um, Michael Harrington route, of, uh, which actually made a lot of sense at the time in the 60s and 70s, of trying to transform and realign the Democratic Party. Because if it didn't work then, with all those fissures in the Democratic Party and with all the mobilized social forces, I just can't see it working now. But at the same time, I know that the last uh, successful third-party effort, um, you know, eventually got us Donald Trump. You know, so. Uh, um, but but in fact, you know, uh, I'm open to different ideas. In other words, I think in the short term, uh, it's very hard for me to say that socialists should be spending our time trying to get ballot status access when um, we could have easier access to, to primaries. But again, it depends on the location. Uh, we shouldn't forget that almost 70%, I believe, of elections in the U.S. Uh, local elections, including almost everything west of the Mississippi, is nonpartisan. You know, are nonpartisan races. So this shouldn't be a crippling or, or you know paralyzing um, debate. I think we can immediately run um, candidates kind of skirting the question uh, in these uh, nonpartisan races. All right, over here. Hi, uh, Ian Samuel. I'm a lecturer at Harvard Law School. Uh, Love magazine. And uh, as we get ready to possibly have the confirmation of a new Supreme Court justice, I guess I'm curious for your thoughts on the role of the courts and judges and legal strategy uh, on the left. It's obviously the case that over the, you know, the back half of the 20th century, the court played you know, an important role in a lot of you know, victories on the left. 
It's also true that over the broad sweep of American history, courts have often been an incredibly reactionary force, and they still often are. So I guess I'm curious if you think that the courts have a big role to play in leftist political strategy. Is it just something we sort of need to give up on and hope that they're not too much of a drag on the effort? Is there some third thing there? Just what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm a... Uh, Rob Hunter um, has written a lot for Jacobin on, on this particular idea, uh, the role of the court system and whatnot. I would say overall, I find um, I think the courts play a role um, dampening our ability to reshape America um, in a more democratic um, direction. Obviously, I think there's a role for a court system, but I would just conceive of this role being, you know, as small as possible, protecting certain uh, freedoms and rights and so on. But, you know, fundamentally, our task, and the way I conceive of it on the left, is to extend freedom. But we are going to extend freedom by actually intruding on the freedom of some in certain ways, right? It won't be their freedom to organize or speak or, or whatnot, but it'll be their freedom to, um, I mean, a dogmatic way to be put it, put it would be their freedom to exploit, but let's put it a different way. If you're running a, a corporation, you obviously are under a lot of pressures. You're under pressures to maintain profitability and, and whatnot. So you might want your workers on a down month to work an extra two hours, right? Um, and of course, you're paying them for these two hours. Now, if the government says, no, in fact, you can't work your workers over 40 hours um, a, a week. If you need extra help, you have to hire more people or whatnot. We're obviously intruding on the scope of, uh, of the freedom of, of private property or whatnot. But we think this freedom obviously extends more freedom to more people, right? These workers have extra spare time. They can spend time with their family. They could pursue hobbies. They could you know, uh, watch TV, you know, whatever else. So, so I, I think in other words, like that the court system will always in the US uh, dampen these kind of things. I think what's a more interesting question is what would like jurisprudence look like in a social society? Because I think there is a need for it. And if the examples of the uh, 20th century is, you know, uh, you know, it, it is to be, you know, remembered, I think that we, we should think about the way in which social societies will need an independent judiciary that play, will say, play some role uh, defending uh, freedoms and, and preventing um, um, certain tyrannies. Um, but as it is, you know, I'm sure if we have this current system, I would love to have more left-wingers appointed to Supreme Court instead of the people we're getting appointed. But I think we shouldn't uh, think of our model of politics through that, because even if we can't imagine um, a robust court system like we had in the mid-20th century ushering in certain things, I think this will often be kind of gains from above uh, that are then less sustainable um, than, than gains from, from below. Um, hi, I'm Karen Mansford. I teach at the Kennedy School. Um, a couple of times you've mentioned the word redistribution. And leaving aside the fact that Marx thought that was a bourgeois approach to um, to, to the problem, um, it's not a very co popular concept in the United States either. Um, and when I think of Bernie Sanders, I think of him supporting work um, and workers. Um, and um, so, what do you think about redistribution? Well, I'm for redistribution of power, right? And I'm for building social goods. Um, and in the process of building the money necessary to get these social goods, we're going to have to redistribute wealth. But I agree with you in that re the redistribution of wealth is a byproduct of the policies I want. It's not necessarily the, the main goal. And in the project, project of building up the power of workers, these workers will be able to press demands, which will redistribute wealth. But I think of it as the secondary effect, not the main um, effect. Um, so I would, I would agree with, with, with Marx as far as the concept. Uh, I would also say this is the reason why I think 
Uh, the idea of a, a federal jobs guarantee is a much more powerful and dangerous idea and also more politically palatable than ideas that are, are now in vogue of like a universal basic income. So my ideal scenario would be a federal jobs guarantee plus a basic income for those engaging in care work or elder work or other work traditionally um, not valued enough by, by society um, or unable to work. Um, but fundamentally, I think that, that um, we're concerned about power. That's why if more people are employed, um, labor markets are tighter and workers have more power at the point of production. And that's when 20, 30 people can make decisions that will impact thousands of people. And that's the reason why socialists always talk about workers in the working class, right? It isn't kind of a moral category. It's not say these people are more, more holy or more deserving than, than others. It's just to say this is still the most powerful agent in society. And if you win over a majority of the working class, this is a force that can like lift up um, all others, you know, uh, poor and, and oppressed um, uh, people. How, well, how do you think about the decline of unions in the United States? Yeah, I mean, so I'm of two minds, right? When, I, when I'm thinking of my most kind of optimistic, I say, well, the labor movement has some sort of objective basis, right? It's rooted in conditions that aren't going to go away, so it'll always kind of rebuild itself, right? So as long as there's capitalism in these prevailing conditions, workers will realize they need to collectively bargain in order to push back against their bosses. They can't do it as individuals. And some labor movement will always arise from the ashes. When I think more critically, I think the capital is always at its strongest when it can divide up workers into as small a unit as possible. So even having uh, union density at around you know, 10% or whatever is quite an accomplishment. And it took years and years and decades of struggle. And the idea that now with the soon to come ruling is against um, you know, public sector unionism and, and whatnot, that this, this strength that we have in the public sector, one of the last bastions of labor movement will be further eroded, um, you know, it, it, it scares me. And it, it, it makes me think that it's, uh, you know, the project of creating social democracy is only going to be uh, that much um, more distant in the U.S. And obviously the project of creating a kind of um, socialism after capitalism that I want is even further and further um, away. I would say that some of this is self-inflicted, right? So unions have not done a good enough job engaging their membership and convincing people that there's actually a reason to be a part of a union. And it's, it's been very a transactional thing where people have been almost doing the calculation in their head that I'm getting XYZ benefits, I'm paying this much in dues, I have no real connection to any decision-making process in my union. Um, and I think that's, that's very, um, very worrying. And I think to some degree this is almost deserved some of the, the downfall of American um, unions. So to my, my hope is through these rank-and-file struggles to democratize unions will in fact convince people that they have something to gain, they have a vested interest in defending unions. Even something like the fact that you, know, you might be a member of a union today um, because of a vote that happened three or four decades ago. Um, there is some truth in right-wing arguments about unionization that says, well, that's fundamentally undemocratic, right? Having one plebiscite once and, and the continuation. There is maybe something fundamentally undemocratic about, um, as a condition of your employment, having to be a union member, and then having to have your dues deducted every month without you having any say in the matter, and so on. Um, Europe, uh, in Europe, you know, unions don't have to rely on those, those mechanisms, right? So I think fundamentally we need a more militant, more democratic labor movement. But for now, this is the labor movement we have, and it's still the most 
organized and consistently progressive force in American politics. So I can't just put on a very ideological hat and say, you know, let it burn, we'll rebuild it, because I don't think we will be able to, at least in uh, the next generation or two. Uh, so I want to follow up on the, the previous question about work uh, versus goods and or you know or handouts whatever. Uh, the Trump uh, in the stump speech he gave in those Rust Belt states that gave him the election, uh, part of his stump speech was actually to say we need to rebuild the means of making a living. He actually used the phrase means of making a living, which is of course a translation of means of production. So he said, so part of his stump speech, and I know folks might not believe this, but actually, if you actually Google it and go watch the speech, it's pretty amazing. He said, the elites have dismantled our means of making a living, and I'm going to rebuild it. So of course, he didn't, you know, he's, he's not, he's just, you know, handing everything over to Goldman Sachs again. But, um, uh, but where is, I was kind of expecting that that would trigger a, some socialist voices uh, to pick up on how that kind of worked for him. And because that actually is, you know, a more uh, socialist idea than jobs guarantee, you know, rebuilding the means of production. And if, 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 as a socialist, if you're willing to work with corporations, which it sounds like you are, you're not saying let's smash the corporations. You're 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 willing to do some tactical negotiations here, right, over the coming decades. And uh, so, if you are, then why 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 wouldn't you and and other you know socialists that you're working with? raise that same message and say, hey, let's get together and rebuild our economy, rebuild our means of making a living. Well, I, I, introduce yourself, Greg. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, Zach Exley, uh, Shorenstein Fellow. Well, as far as the question of willing to work with corporations, I think that... Well, how about well, willing to let them exist? Well, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, this is not something you kind of will or, or, or not will. I, obviously, I advocate for a vision of socialism, let's say, after capitalism. In the meantime, and in route to building the power necessary to do that and the majoritarian consensus to do that, I'll settle for social doses of socialism within capitalism, but as a part of a, a workers' movement and a broader political movement that, that does have the end goal of eroding the power of capitalist, capitalism and transforming capitalism. Because fundamentally, I don't think social democracy is sustainable. Because capitalists, if they have the power of investment solely in their hands, they can always, when time gets, times get rough or their profitability is, is challenged, um, erode the gains we have. So the Marxist tradition has often been uh, kind of, uh, the, the comparison has always often been to like Sisyphus, right? Uh, rolling the boulder up the hill only to see it, you know, fall down. Um, and, you know, so, so I, I would say that. Um, in the meantime, as far as working with corporations, as far as they exist in society, and if you're building a workers' movement, you're making demands on them. So if that's counts as working with them, then maybe, but also you could say that like a hostage crisis is like, you know, you're, you're working with, uh, with the people you have a, a gun pointed to. Um, now, as far as this broader question of, of work and rhetoric, I think it is telling that, that Bannon used the rhetoric of the American, I think this is more Bannon than, than whatever Trump's, um, you know, thinking at this moment. You know, I've read Art of the Deal, uh, you know, he was not talking much about the American um, um, worker then. But, um, the Republicans are trying to be, in a kind of identitarian way, the party of the American worker, the American working class. They're resurrecting this rhetoric. They're combining it, obviously, with policies that are nakedly opposed to the interests of the American workers. So I'm not even just saying that, oh, they're duping people, or whatever. They're not even trying to dupe people. If you actually look at Trump care and these other proposals, I mean, this is just like 
like attacks on some of the very people that, that voted for, for Trump right away with no particular reason to, to go about it this way. Now, as far as the rhetoric, I actually think there's lots of uh, ways in which it mirrored the rhetoric of Sanders, which did talk about, in other words, it did rely somewhat on a makers and takers discourse. Uh, Sanders did talk about the hardworking American uh, worker and the American family that deserved more. Um, I think the difference was who he said the taker was. He just said the taker was broadly the millionaires and billionaires. And this class antagonism, I think, is actually firmly rooted in the socialist tradition. Um, who were Trump's takers? It was um, um, felons, it was undeserving illegals, it was all these other things that, you know. So I don't like this comparison. I don't like the fascist comparison or whatnot, but, you know. Uh, you know, we invented the torchlit march, the SPD, the German Social Democratic Party invented the torchlit mar like, march. So, like, you know, the right has always appropriated aesthetics and language from the, from the, um, from the left. Um, as far as why the Democratic Party doesn't use this rhetoric, uh, the Democratic Party is concerned with being a governing party. They're concerned with maintaining this kind of broad, difficult coalition they have. So, um, it's often been put. Uh, by Doug Henwood and others, the Democratic Party is a party of American capital that, for electoral reasons, has to pretend like it's not. Um, and that's, that's a difficult balance, and I think it constrains the rhetoric of the Democrats. Whereas I think the Republicans can say whatever they want. I think at the end of the day, when they're elected, at least for the foreseeable future, markets will boom and business confidence will be there. Um, thank you so much for being here and to the Shorenstein Center for organizing this. Um, I'm Christine Jacobson and I work in the library here and I'm happy to report that we now subscribe to Jacobin. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could respond to um, a criticism that is historically made of the Socialist Party in America um, and that in fact ta Coates made of Bernie Sanders um, a few weeks ago when he was here and that is that the Socialist Party doesn't offer anything special. Um, to the black worker. Um, and it seemed in your articulation of what you think the Socialist Party is offering the black worker kind of stops at, um, you know, expanded Medicaid and addressing poverty. That was sort of Bernie Sanders' platform. Um, and so it, it's noticeable that it stopped short of reparations. And so I'm wondering, you don't have to respond yep. personally, but for on behalf of the Socialist Party or whatever, if you could maybe talk a little bit about that. The Socialist Party, unfortunately, uh, split into three in the, in the early 1970s. So I'm, I'm the vice chair of the Democratic Socialist of America, which is now up to like 20,000 20, members. So I guess we're one of the biggest things since, since at least then, or at least the, the, the pre-Khrushchev speech um, Communist Party. Um, now, often this particular language, I'm not sure if Coates said this, nothing special to offer language, is often rooted in actually misquoting or misrepresentation of something once said by Eugene Debs when arguing with like actual racists within, uh, within the Socialist Party and this kind of branch of people, uh, the more social democratic uh, right wing of the party um, based in um, the uh, upper Midwest normally. But I mean, that's kind of, there's an argue, uh, article on Jacobin about that. I don't want to rehash that. Now on the question of, of reparations, to me it's an argument that exists purely in the political um, imaginary. So how would this look in, in practice, right? Uh, what kind of proof would we be asking for? Would it apply to um, you know, people who are, let's say, uh, second or third or fourth um, immigrants from Jamaica, right? And obviously um, like suffered from, the, from slavery and the effects of, of slavery. Um, 
but you know connected to the british empire not the us so, so it's all these kind of questions that i think often makes it just a purely rhetorical um device so what do we want something like reparations to do we want reparations to um uplift a historic injustice um if there's disproportionate unemployment in the black um, community among black workers then a full employment <laughs> program actually has something special to offer to the black community that doesn't have to offer with to uh, white workers who uh, have higher levels of, of employment. Um, you know, so it, it does have something special to offer, but a lot of it is rooted in these kind of class um, demands. Now, that's not to say that there shouldn't be particular um, organization done by black workers. Not to say that black workers shouldn't at, at moments or at times organize under their own banner, right? But often when they do, they do so among a set of demands that is largely economic in formation, right? So if you look at the Black Panther Party, if you look at the part of black nationalism that moved to the left, they all embrace socialist ideas. So for them, this wasn't a concern. To them, their enemies were um, capitalists and a political elite in the United States. And, and broader systems of, of, of imperialism and oppression connected to capitalism. So for them, they didn't have any of these concerns. So I think it's a relatively, um, so I don't actually think it's quite as longstanding as of a you know, comparison. So the idea that like socialism uh, doesn't have anything particular to offer or special to offer to oppressed people would be a total surprise to the legacy of like even third world, um, you know, uh, post-colonial movements and struggles. It all organized under the socialist banner. Um, at any point from the 20th century and onward, there have been more black and brown socialists than there have been white socialists or socialists in Europe. Um, so I find I find that language just not, that argument not very, um, not very um, compelling. Um, I do think there is a variety of anti-racism that is leveled purely at the symbolic and representational uh, sphere and doesn't go deeper to issues of class. Now, if you're asking me, should the elite in the United States be changed so it's 50% you know, women and like at least 10% black and so on? Sure. Actually, yes. I, I don't think there's not. I'm not against those struggles. I think they don't go deep enough to actually fundamentally um, change things. All right. Uh, I'm going to just ask you a couple closing questions. First, I wonder what are you what are you most worried about right now? Um, besides for the fact Trump is president, or, or that? Um, well, I'm most worried that I think the, the Democrats initially drew some lessons. It seems from um, from the uh, election. And you see this even, like Chuck Schumer is a good bellwether because this guy is like a total opportunist to, to, to the point that he cozied up to people like Bernie Sanders right after the election, right? Uh, I think if we had a socialist revolution, Chuck Schumer would, would join us, you know, just because he just wants the cameras. And, you know, if we have the cameras pointed at us, he'll, he'll join us. But now there seems to be a backtracking. Now everybody's talking about Russia. They're talking about, like, how, you know, the CIA, the last bastion of defense of democracy. And so obviously indisputable, you know, of course. Um, and I'm worried that they're drifting away from this initial idea that the Democrats weren't doing enough to appeal to workers. I also think the segment of this kind of liberal left that does think this is also perhaps even too narrowly just saying working class is a euphemism for white uh, workers. The problem is the Democrats actually had diminished turnout, diminished uh, results for black workers and Latino workers and 
than everyone else too. So I think it's not just a, a cultural thing. It's not just like, oh, we, we weren't out there like um, Joe Biden walking around with our you know, sleeves rolled up or whatever. Um, it, it isn't just optics or messaging. It's actually your policies, right? Actually show people that you want something different. You want something that will help their lives and you're willing to take political costs in order to do it. Um, and this is something that, that the Democrats, at least mainstream Democrats, I don't think will, will be able to do. I think a lot of the Democratic base, though, wants it. And I think there are politicians and segments of the Democratic Party that could be one to this sort of like Bernie Sanders agenda. So I'll just wrap up by saying that who's the most popular politician in the United States? Bernie Sanders. If you, if you look at the response that even his, his, his speeches all around the country get, his town halls get and whatnot, you would see it. The Republicans know it. Everybody in American society seemingly knows it, except for the Democratic Party. They're concerned. There's quotes recently by de leading Democrats saying they're concerned that the economic populism of Bernie Sanders will hurt them in more conservative swing states that they adopted. Have they actually been paying attention to the rhetoric that has been succeeding in these, in these states? So it's not that Bernie Sanders won over just liberals and these liberals have become more left wing. No, Bernie Sanders pulls very well among moderates and independents and other people. So there's people fed up with politics who don't associate, like in Europe, social democracy with this old decrepit tradition, but actually it's just like, oh, this is the first time I heard this. This sounds about right. You know, it sounds about right that I shouldn't have to go into debt if something, you know, happens and I have to go to an emergency room. Like these kind of things are, are common sense and they speak at the very like root and gut of someone's, uh, you know, uh, political beliefs and moral and ethical sense of uh, being. Um, so I'm worried about, um, about a Democratic Party that doesn't um, embrace this. And I'm worried about that even if, um, let's say, we have a Cory Booker-Trump matchup in, in 2020, that even if uh, Trump loses, which I hope he would in that, that matchup, that Trumpism will be alive and well and will be, in fact, the only anti-establishment oppositional force. And we're running out of time, partially because we're very heavily dependent on Bernie Sanders. And we're dependent on, on a, a, an excellent leader, but someone who's getting older, who, who might not be able to uh, you know, put up the good fight for much, much, uh, much longer, at least at this pace and intensity. Um, and we need to cultivate a new generation of, of leaders able to tap into what he did, he did right. If that worries you, what gives you hope? Um, what gives me hope is the fact that I think we have a, uh, a majority or a potential majority for at least the short-term demands that, that socialists have. Uh, it gives me hope that socialism now exists, at least in people's minds, that it isn't just a, a dirty word connected to uh, the crimes of Stalinism or with kind of an, an older, um, not relevant politics. Um, so it gives me hope that we could build an oppositional movement in the long run. What's hard, and this probably should give me more caution too, is I think we can win in the long run. But, uh, you know, we have climate change, all sorts of things that demand short-term uh, policy solutions before things even get on a worse, um, a worse course. And even though I think we're now becoming better positioned to influence politics over the course of 20, 30, 40 years, uh, we're very far away from building the kind of majorities we need to usher in um, policy. Um, and that's a gap we'll have to figure out a way to, uh, to make up. Baskar Sankara, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com. Music.